unexplained deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining us again for what is bound to be just one of those incredible podcasts that leaves you thinking, what the hell have I just been listening to? Today, I am joined by Ian and also a very special guest. This case is just confusing to say the very least, and I can't wait to hear more about it. I've purposefully not done any research on this case whatsoever at all, so I can't wait to hear all about it, just like you guys. So Ian, would you like to say hello and introduce your secret little guest that we've got today? Good morning, uh, Debbie, and you look resplendent as ever. Yes, my uh, good chum, uh, Frankie Franklin, we used to work in uh, uh, Slough and District uh, many years ago. And uh, since I left the police, he went on to uh, do a series of other um, operational roles which uh, link into this case wonderfully. In fact, um, Frankie found the body of Dr. David Kelly. So without any further ado, Frankie, can we just have a few words of introduction from your good self? And then I'll uh, go into an overview of the case. Thank you. Good morning, Ian. Good morning, Debbie. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, my name is Frankie. I'm a retired police officer, 26 years with Thames Valley. And during that time, I worked on firearms. I was a police search advisor, a rep access officer, body recovery, mortuary, disaster victim identification, and finished up as a sergeant in custody. Retired two and a half years ago due to a little tiny injury I got. So all is well. Frankie, thank you. Um, your voice went a little bit down when you talked about custody. Listen, from my experiences, Slough custody was legend. I loved it down there. And uh, sometimes you got fed, didn't you? Which was absolutely fantastic. And also for our listeners, in addition to Frankie's uh, rich policing pedigree, um, look up ITV Beat the Chasers, because our Frankie was on there as well. Okay, guys, what I'd like to do then is uh, provide an overview of the case, which I've distilled from open source material on the internet. Uh, from my criminologist background, I'm pretty certain on balance it's the most credible reporting of this intriguing case. So what I will do is I'll give an overview and uh, then I'll come back to you, Frankie and Debbie, to start to take apart some of the speculations around this, uh, this death. But if I can start with, um, first of all, who was Dr. David Kelly. David Kelly, born on the 14th of May 1944, was a Welsh scientist and leading authority on biological warfare. In 1963, he was admitted to the University of Leeds to study chemistry, botany and biophysics. On the 15th of July 1967, he married Janice. The following year, he joined the Insect Pathology Unit at the University of Oxford, receiving his doctorate in microbiology three years later. He then went on to conduct postdoctoral research at the University of Warwick before returning to Oxford, where he became the chief scientific officer at the Institute of Virology. In 1984, he joined the Ministry of Defence as the head of the Defence Microbiology Division, working at Portendown in Wiltshire. He also worked as a weapons inspector in Iraq between 1991 and 1998, following the first Gulf War, earning a nomination for a Nobel Peace Prize. In 2003, he was the subject of intense media scrutiny after being identified in newspapers as the man the government believed was the source for a controversial BBC report on Iraq. 
David Kelly was used to talking to journalists behind the scenes, but he now became a key figure in the row between the government and the BBC over claims that Downing Street had sexed up a dossier on Iraq's weapons capability. The BBC report cast doubt on the government's claim that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction capable of being deployed within 45 minutes. After he was named in newspapers, Dr Kelly gave evidence to MPs' committees in which he said he did not believe he was the main source of the story. Two days later, after his testimony, the 59-year-old was found dead in Woodland a few miles from his Oxfordshire home after apparently taking his own life. His wife Janice later told the inquiry into his death that her husband had been utterly dismayed by the media frenzy around him. After his death, the BBC confirmed that the scientists had been its principal contact for the report, claiming the Iraq dossier had indeed been sexed up. On the day Dr Kelly's body was discovered, the then Prime Minister Tony Blair asked Lord Hutton to conduct an urgent investigation into the circumstances surrounding his death. The inquest opened into Dr Kelly's death was never completed. Lord Hutton released his findings in January 2004, reporting that the scientist had committed suicide by slashing his wrist with a blunt gardening knife. Speculation about the circumstances of his death have continued to be rife ever since. In October 2010, the government sought to end the continuing conjecture over Dr Kelly's death by releasing reports which backed up Lord Hutton's verdict. So before I hand over to you, Frankie and Debbie, I'd like to examine, so was it suicide? The report by pathologist David Nicholas Hunt, who had attended the scene where Dr Kelly's body was found in July 2003, included evidence he had found a series of wounds on his left wrist, which had completely severed the ulnar artery. Dr Hunt also reported the orientation and arrangement of the wounds over the left wrist are typical of self-inflicted injury. Whilst the wrist wounds were found to be the main cause of death, Dr Hunt added that an excessive number of painkillers which Dr Kelly had taken and an apparently clinically silent coronary artery disease would both have played a part in bringing about death more certainly and more rapidly than would have otherwise been the case. However, a group of independent doctors argue that Lord Hutton's suicide verdict was unsafe, contending that Dr Kelly's wrist injuries were not likely to be life-threatening, making the official cause of death, a hemorrhage, extremely unlikely. They also raised the following questions. Why no fingerprints were found on the knife apparently used to slit his wrist? How Dr David Kelly obtained a packet of painkillers? Why his blood and stomach contained only a non-toxic dose of the drug? Why he was not spotted by a police helicopter with a thermal imaging cameras which flew over the wood where his body was later found? And finally, whether he intended to indeed kill himself? They petitioned the then Attorney General Dominic Grieve for a reopening of inquiries. In response, Mr Grieve later told MPs, having given all the material that's been sent to me, the most careful consideration. I've concluded that the evidence that Dr Kelly took his own life is overwhelmingly strong. Further, there is nothing I've seen that supports any allegation that Dr Kelly was murdered or that his death was the subject of any kind of conspiracy or cover-up. Nonetheless, campaign leader Dr Stephen Frost said that continuing cover-up of the truth of what happened is a national disgrace and should be the concern to all British citizens. Frankie, with that ending a little bit gravitous, I'd like to 
hand over to you. And in particular, before we start to sort of unpick some of these speculations and conspiracies that have uh, floated through the internet since his death, could you, for our listeners, give a timeline of what happened on the day when you received the call? I was actually off duty and uh, I received a phone call round about 6am on the morning of the 18th of July 2003 when my colleague who had, was on call uh, said, you need to come down to Abingdon now, Dr. David Kelly's gone missing. My immediate response was, who is Dr. David Kelly? Generally had no idea who the man was at the time. He said to me, you will, everybody will, because you need to get down here now. So I went down to Abingdon and became part of the search team. And my role as police search advisor, um, I was to lead a team at some point in the search of Harrowdown Hill near to Abingdon to look for David Kelly, who had been reported missing the night before. So at that time, it was a missing person inquiry. Missing person searches, those especially to do with despondent people, are centred around areas that they know and areas of natural beauty. And Harrowdown Hill was such a place for Dr. David Kelly. He went there frequently on walks and is a place of outstanding natural beauty. Whilst we were at uh, Abingdon, being brief, civilian dog teams that the police used regularly um, were deployed out to the scene um, and information was received that a body had been seen on Harrowdown Hill by a civilian dog handler and her crewmate, although they had not, it's quite important this, they had not gone to the body, they had stood a hundred so or so yards away. We basically train them when we, when we work with them not to go near the crime scene so that they can't damage the crime scene or disturb any evidence that may be there. Even with missing people, we do that. I was deployed down with my search team leader uh, and we arrived at the location a short while later. On scene when I got there was a detective and a uniform officer um, who'd obviously also deployed and were, were guarding the scene as well. In my role as search advisor, I took charge of the scene and my crewmate and I, my team leader and I, attended the location of the body and quickly established that the body was that of Dr. David Kelly and that he was deceased. That was very obvious from the outset. My team leader photographed the scene before we did anything. And although scenes of crime invariably photograph evidentially, as a search team, we always used to photograph at scenes so that we had a record of what we did at the scene. So we could prove we hadn't disturbed anything, moved anything, touched anything. And if we did, we photographed it. Dr. Kelly was lying on his back with his right hand by his side and his left hand was slightly away from the body with the palm facing down. There was a lot of blood on the wrist and hand of the left side of his hand and, and wrist and on the surrounding foliage and on the ground. There was a lot of blood. He'd also vomited. Close to his left arm was a wristwatch which he'd taken off. It was lying next to the wrist. A knife with a curved blade of a practice four inches in length, and half an empty bottle of water. There was blood on the blade of the knife. Two paramedics arrived very soon after that and pronounced life extinct. I then ordered everyone out the scene to minimalise disturbance around the body because I knew scenes of crime, pathology, etc. would be out, um, and any evidence recovery would be done slow time. So the only time we touched Dr Kelly's body was to undo the buttons on his shirt so that it could be open, so the paramedics could put the, the, the sticky bits on the chest to check for any heart activity. There was none. My immediate thought, and I've been to quite a few missing person scenes, 
um, was that Dr. David Kelly had committed suicide. He sort of fitted the brief, gone missing. He was despondent. There was a knife with blood in it next to his left wrist. Obviously, it's right-handed. He's going to cut on the left-hand side. Um, he was in a place of beauty, a place well-known to him, uh, and is often the case with male suicide victims. Um, it's what we would describe as a violent death. And by that, I don't mean violence as in um, aggression and, and, and fighting. I mean a violent death by cutting yourself. Men's, male suicides tend to, tend to do that, hanging, cutting their arms, um, throwing themselves in front of the trains, etc. the more violent the side of things. And obviously he'd cut his wrist and it would be classed to us as, as a violent death. We set up a cordon uh, around the body and set up what we call a common approach path. Now this is a single point of entry and exit for anybody else that now came to that scene. This again minimalizes the disturbance of any evidence by having one way in, one way out. My team leader colleague and I, we searched the common approach path on our hands and knees meticulously so that it could be cleared for people to use. Nothing was found there at all. I remained on scene until uh, scenes of crime came in and carried out evidence recovered at the scene with Dr. Hunt, uh, as previously mentioned by Ian. Empty pill packets were found by them, uh, and this added to my suicide theory. I think there was 30 tablets, and they were co codamol or coproximal that had been taken uh, by Dr. David Kelly. As I say, this added to my suicide theory. Uh, I, I just thought that the pills were taken for analgesic effect, and the, as turned out to be five cuts to his wrists were hesitant cuts, test cuts, until the pain had, was lessened enough for him to make the final cut, which cut the ulnar artery, and therefore put blood all over the sink. I then was given a separate search team uh, to search away from the area of the body. So the area we'd cordoned off, we searched outside of this um, to make sure um, there was no evidence to be recovered from there. There wasn't, and there was no signs of violence or struggle or anything on the outside of the scene or on the inside of the scene. That took most of the day. It was, it was sort of eight o'clock in the evening by the time we'd finished all that, um, and, and we were ready to go home. Uh, I was then asked to come back the next day to conduct a search of Dr. David Kelly's house. It's difficult this because I'd been at the scene all day where his body was and I was concerned about cross-contamination at the scene. Lockhart's theory of exchange. Uh, the basic principle of Lockhart's theory is that the contact between two items, there will be an exchange of microscopic details. So you could take something from here and leave it here. And that includes fibres, but in, you know, community hair, pollen, paint, soil. I was told not to worry. We'd all been home, changed, showered, and we were all going to be covered in forensic suits, head to toes. So I went in as search team, as search advisor, uh, with the same search team leader to run the house search. We were looking for documentary evidence in that house. Not not just documentary evidence that may be a bit sensitive, but also we were looking for a suicide note and any indication that Dr. Kelly had gone off the previous evening or two evenings before, despondent, kill himself. We didn't. We did have a man in attendance with us, a man I'd not seen before. I was told he was from Special Branch. I didn't believe that then, and I still don't believe that. Now, that is my only niggle with the whole of the Dr. David Kelly experience that I had. Unexplained deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis. We, we searched the house thoroughly, and I put two of my best chaps into the study where Dr. David Kelly's documents were, because um, I knew they would check every word on every page and every book that was in there. I was privy to examining many of these documents, and some of which were 
sensitive, as you would expect with the role that the man had. Normal practice, my team were seizing exhibits individually, dealing with them carefully, properly, bagging, tagging, date, time, place. And at one point, a document was found. I'll stress I cannot and will not say what it was about, but this visitor, allegedly from Special Branch, told, ordered me to finish the search there and then, and everything else was to be bagged and tagged en masse, which is not normal procedure. I did protest quite vehemently, um, but was told from high that that's what we had to do. That everything else in the whole house, documents, were bagged and tagged, whole drawers, whole boxes of paperwork without us going through, and they were to be gone through at a later date. The search finished that day, it was a one day search. It was a press frenzy outside. It was, it was horrific. We were used to it, but the family, Dr. David Kelly's family were there for most of the time, and it must have been absolutely horrific for them. I then gave evidence at the Hutton Inquiry on the 2nd of September 2003 at the Royal Courts of Justice, and the house search was never mentioned at all. Frankie. Wow. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I can only echo wow for an incredible and detailed account of your experience. I've got a load of questions, but um, the first thing that intrigues me, and I'm going to go all over the place. You know me, Frankie, when we sit down for a beer, our um, conversations go all over the place, and, 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 and I'll do exactly the same here. You talked about this man at the house, and I've written down here, man in black or men in black because very often you hear the phrase conspiracies that the men in black appear when you were talking about before you said that you found david on his back on the ground that's what i saw was i don't really know what he looks like i will have seen his his picture you know over time in the papers at some point but the image that I saw was him lay on the ground and kind of as you described. But the strange thing is that I could see when you just said a man in black and you you, you were going to ask the question then to Frankie about the man, you know, that was in the house. What I saw when I saw him at what I would call a scene or the scene lay on his back on the ground is a man Actually, wearing all black, actually, it looked like a black suit to me. It may be that this is symbolic, I don't know yet. He was knelt over him. Um, he was knelt over him, and yet this looked like a very smartly dressed, not, not like somebody that you would expect to possibly be killing somebody, say, for instance. So I don't know, as of yet, why I see him. But... He he had quite dark hair, but I only saw the back of him kneeling over um, David Kelly, but smartly dressed in a suit. Anyway, I just wanted yes, to the, say the, that, so carry on, Ian, sorry. The spooks, as we used to call them from, from the security service, are known as Men in Black. But there was, there was a, a theory, uh, a claim, that Men in Black were seen at the scene where Dr. David Kelly's body was, as Debbie's just said. Really? I can sort of answer that. When my team leader and I first arrived, well, as we were members of the search team, we, we weren't dressed as regular cops in, in you know, the hats, helmets, ties, shirts, etc. We wore all black from head to toe, from black T-shirts to black trousers to black jumpers to black overalls. And that's what we were wearing on that day. Part of my theory on the men in black conspiracy is that it was my team leader and I. I didn't even know. From the uniform cop and the, and, and the detective that was there. 
nobody's going to believe me now that I didn't know about any theory of men in black and anybody seeing any men in black there at the time. Honestly, I can I can put my hand on my heart and say, on my kids' lives, I did not know any of that at all whatsoever. I can only tell you what I see. Actually, if I'd have known about that, I wouldn't I wouldn't have even told you that I'd seen it because I'd just think, well, nobody will believe you, Debbie. So that's strange. We were accused by a newspaper. They never named us. They just said the men in black. But anyone that was involved in that knows that was my colleague and I. We were accused of altering the crime scene, moving the knife, doing moving the pills, doing et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I can, I can put my hand on my heart and swear, tell you that in all my years as a search team leader and a police supervisor, that never, ever happened. But I was knelt by the side of the body and bent over, all dressed in black. I feel that this man, though, was on his own there, um, to be honest with you. When I'm asking that question and the way that I feel is that he was on his own, I don't actually think that was you. I don't think that was you. Oh, I wonder, Debbie, are you picking up any emotion around yes, this scene? Funnily because, enough, because yeah. Frankie has <laughs> earlier on in his narrative talking about the tranquility. So, what emotions are you picking up on? It's it's like I want to cry. I rarely cry, honestly, but it's like I, I want to cry. To be honest with you, there is there is a lot of emotion there. It's a very baffling case, isn't it? And it's it's a very unusual thing for me to be looking at situation for me to be looking at to be honest with you I don't know why they only show me the back of this this person but I feel quite sinister about it I do it's got to be said I do when Frankie was talking about the man that was there in the, in the house whoever he is I instinctively feel like warning vibes about that person why I don't know at this moment but I do just picking up on that, Frankie, then, uh, you yourself said it was an odd occasion to have this chap in the house. Um, in all the years that you've reflected afterwards, are you any clearer to sort of coming up with a conclusion as to who he was and what his role was and how he drew a line under the search um, quite spontaneously once you'd found this piece of evidence? I, I know he wasn't from Special Branch because I knew all of the Special Branch officers that we worked with in, in that part of Thames Valley. My presumption is he was uh, from the government, from security service. Because of the nature of the situation, uh, the Iraq dossier, etc., etc., and David Kelly getting a hard time at the, at the parliamentary commission when he, when he was given a rough time. I'm presuming, because of Dr. David Kelly's role in life, that he would have had sensitive documents at his house and yeah. that this gentleman was sent to make sure that A, nothing left the house, of course it wouldn't, uh, and B, that we didn't see things that perhaps we didn't need to see. But when we did, we found a document that was that would be interesting to the newspapers, I would suspect, he shut us down straight away. Okay, thank you. And, and he, had, like... he had the authority to do it, which is very important, because yeah. he went over I my just, head. I'd just like to return to you turning up to the scene for the first time, and you do paint this picture of... Um, calmness serenity beauty and it's consistent with where a person may well decide to commit suicide you also outline the consistencies of when men 
kill themselves in the choices that they generally make. And you're absolutely right. And, and that is well documented from a criminologist's point of view. You know, it's known that those are the ticks in the box that normally follow this type of activity. Perhaps continuing with the conspiracy claims for a moment. Could that scene not be duplicated by other agents, knowing that the police would be looking to tick those boxes? I would suppose it could, in, in theory. In practice, in my 15 years as a police supervisor and 26 years as a police officer, I have never really seen it. The scene, the scene was the scene of a missing person who'd gone and killed himself. And yes, of course, I, I suppose if you knew the, the, the theory behind it, you could quite easily select that location and you could quite easily, I think. It all seemed very natural to me, for want of a better expression. There was no signs of struggle, no signs of violence. It just seemed like Dr. David had gone in the woods, taken the pills, drunk the water, slit his wrist. Well, he didn't, did he? Go on, Debbie. <laughs> You're uh, contradicting that account. Well, he from, didn't. Uh... No, no, he didn't. He was murdered, wasn't he? He was murdered. 100% certainty he was murdered. And I think that he had no choice but to leave the house that day because otherwise there might have been a different kind of ending which may have involved maybe being in the car with his wife or something like that. And so I think he knew very well that something was, was coming to him and he, he kind of just chose it to be just him and not what could have possibly been much worse. But Debbie, how certain are you with that assertion? Because, you know, Frankie, I, I mean, I've pushed Frankie on this one in terms of could someone else duplicate the, the, the scene? Um, and he was quite adamant that in all of his years of experience, which are really, really important to this analysis, that it would be almost impossible to do that. So where's your certainty that this is a murder as opposed to a suicide? I'm trying to find a way to explain it that you you would understand. So the scene that I am shown of him lay there. I can't describe the, um, no, there's knocks and taps now in my room. <laughs> the whole vibe, the whole feeling is one of, I look at him as being a soul. So his soul, um, his life was ended for him. He didn't end his life. It, it would be a whole different feel to the scene that I'm looking at. If I'd have stumbled across that scene, I would have known within a nanosecond of looking at that man. And, and trust me, honestly, the amount of times that I have done this where I have said, no, no, that, that person, you know, they haven't died like that. Honestly, and been right, though. That's the thing. That's the reason I've, the reason I've got the following that I've got. He definitely had his, his life taken from him. I do believe that he, he left that house that day almost knowing what his fate would be in a way, or he certainly suspected anyway. But I do think as well that had he not chosen to do that, and this is where I've got to at this present moment, had he not chosen to leave the house that day like he did, because this is a very clever, intelligent man. And who we're talking about here are kind of men in, in black, I suppose, or, you know, invisible forces or whatever, only they're not really that invisible, are they? But I do believe, I do believe that that he had an option. And that was if he didn't choose to walk towards what would be his untimely death, then I think something 
something else would have happened that would have been possibly like a fatal accident involving his wife. That's what I think. And as we go, I might know more. (laughs) Okay. At this juncture, what I'd like to do before I return to you, Frankie, and and outline again the specific claims by the doctors that argued that the Lord Hutton suicide verdict was unsafe and and go through those in, in detail... Um, I'd like to just return to a, a sort of academic point of view on uh, why do people believe in conspiracies? And it's, it's quite fascinating because one of our main reasons is the desire for understanding and certainty. And as Professor Ludden asserts, we're constantly asking why things happen the way they do. Why does it have to rain the day I want to go out? Why did she give me the cold shoulder like that? Why can't you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Um, And those are are quotes from the professor. And we don't just ask questions. What we do, we we also quickly try to find answers to those questions, not necessarily true answers, but rather answers that comfort us, that fit into our our worldview. And it's not surprising that we all harbour false beliefs. That is things we believe to be true, but in fact not. And the professor gives um, quite a lucid example. For example, if you believe Sydney is the capital of Australia, you're the victim of a false belief. But once you're confronted with the fact that Canberra is the capital of Australia, you'll readily change your mind. After all, you are simply misinformed and you're not emotionally invested in it. And that emotion point is a real key to the belief in conspiracies because conspiracy theories are also false beliefs by definition. But people who believe in them have a vested enormous emotional interest in maintaining them. They've often put dedicated effort into understanding the conspiracy theory explanation for the event, whether by reading books, going to websites or watching TV programs that support their beliefs. Uncertainty is an unpleasant human state and conspiracy theories provide a sense of understanding and certainty that is comforting. And also, as a, as a final point, especially where institutions that are commonplace in everyday language Um, but nonetheless really fundamentally understood, such as government, the police, when they're at the centre of the question of the notion that it happened as reported, can easily be dismissed by many who believe, for example, that all parliamentarians are liars. Um, Clearly some are, but not all 650 are. So a little bit of a a criminologist uh, sort of overview uh, in terms of the likelihood of conspiracies being fueled by events such as this. There were a series of questions uh, raised by the group that um, denied uh, or countered Lord Hutton's suicide verdict. And if I can, if I can go through each one and get your expert analysis on these. First of all, they claim that no fingerprints were found on the knife apparently used to slit his wrist. What's your uh, thoughts on that? statement. David Kelly was not wearing gloves. His hands were both free. And if there were no fingerprints found on that knife, then I really don't have any explanation for that. We didn't touch the knife. Otherwise, obviously, we'd have had some, uh, we had gloves on, but there would have been, there would have been some sort of transfer. Um, So I don't have an answer for that, Ian. I'm sorry. I don't. Please don't apologise. Again, that might be just a, an erroneous claim. I mean, we, we have not got the source documents in front of us. Uh, Debbie, did you want to come in on this one? Was there anything strange found on toxicology? Because um, I don't believe that, I don't know quite, I don't understand about veins and things on your wrist, but I don't think that that was what killed him. There was a level um, of, of um, either cocodamol or coproximal found in his body at the autopsy. Which would be which would be in line with yes, 
which will be in line with the medication empty pill packets that were found at the scene. Interestingly, the, the, to buff one conspiracy theory and about where did the pills come from, they were his wife's pills. She was taking them for uh, arthritis. I don't feel anything about the pills at all. Yeah, they were there, the empty packets were at the scene and the, the yeah. drugs were found in his body. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel anything funny or dodgy about those at all. I think he took 30, but... allegedly. It's quite uh, interesting that uh, that was the second claim by the, the doctors of how he obtained the painkillers. And you've, uh, you've you've covered that one off. Thank you, Frankie. Um, just getting back to the point that, that, that Debbie mentioned there, uh, one of the accusations also by these group of doctors was why his blood and stomach contained only a non-toxic dose of the drug. I wondered from your knowledge of the case, any, um, any thoughts on that? Well, he'd, he'd vomited, as I said earlier on. He had vomited. Um, I, I'm, I'm no medical man, as you know. There were, I know there were levels of, of the, the drug found in his body. M- maybe he'd vomited some up as, as he'd taken them. I mean, he allegedly took quite a lot of them. I don't know. We, we found the empty pool packets at the scene when, when the body was eventually moved, um, and the presumption was at the time that he'd taken the tablets. And it was, as okay. I said, they were his wife's tablets he'd taken from uh, Barcelona Academy. Thank you. Um... Frankie, the, the next um, assertion by these uh, independent doctors r- reminds me of my operational days uh, many, many years ago when we got the helicopter up. Um, and their assertion is, uh, why wasn't Dr. Kelly spotted, or his body, spotted by a helicopter with thermal imaging cameras which flew over the wood where his body was later found? That I can answer. The helicopter flew the previous night. David Kelly wasn't reported missing until uh, late evening. The helicopter was put up. Um, I think around about 11 p.m., um, and did fly over Harrowdown Hill with thermal imaging cameras. Now, what they don't tell you is, is and in my experience, I've worked with, with thermal imaging cameras and helicopters hundreds and hundreds of times. If Dr. David Kelly was deceased at that time, his body would have been cold and would not have been given off any heat at all. Hence, it wouldn't have been found. The more likely answer to that is thermal imaging cameras struggle to get through dense foliage on trees. Um, I've, I've been to many cases where bodies have been, I use the word missed, but let's say not been found because of the dense foliage. Thermal imaging will not go through the foliage. And where David Kelly was, was in an area of, of dense woodland. So I would say, to answer that question, that the cameras did not pick up Dr. David Kelly's body, um, A, because he was dead, uh, and B, because the foliage of the trees was so thick it would not penetrate. That's a common occurrence. Debbie, I'm looking at your face. Um, what's going through your head at the moment? That sounds a pretty frank rebuttal there by, by Frankie. Can we be absolutely certain and sure that the, the post-mortem was... Um, the post-mortem results have been completely revealed in their entirety. The only thing I can say on that one is that uh, Dominic Grieve uh, reported to MPs and uh, I think it was 2010, I think I mentioned, that uh, the government sought to end this uh, continuing speculation, release reports which backed up the Hutton verdict but i personally haven't seen the the documents but i would imagine that that would have been a, a clinical part of the government's disclosure in 2010. i worked with dr hunt on several occasions and uh, the man is a consummate professional 
Uh, I worked mm. with him on the Upton Nervic train crash um, and several other fairly large jobs, and, and he has always been the consummate professional. Could you perhaps give an indication, if, if at all, and you're talking on behalf of somebody else, but uh, did uh, Dr. Hunt ever say to you um, anything about the counterclaims of, uh, of other colleagues? Not exactly. I met him uh, once at a conference um, and reintroduced myself to him and said how we knew each other. And he said, there's a case I wish I'd never been involved. Unexplained deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis. Finally, then, the, the final counterclaim then against the Hutton uh, verdict uh, was whether Dr. Kelly actually intended to kill himself. And I'm just curious whether you discovered any background about his state of mind or anything that perhaps was consistent with him wanting to commit suicide. What's your view on that? We, we found that, that he had coronary heart disease afterwards um, and that he may not have had long to live anyway. Um, that could be a factor. The despondency. His wife said he was absolutely despondent with, with the, the, the public uh, outcry and public views of him at that time. And the fact he'd received a, a really hard time um, at, the, at the parliamentary uh, inquiry in, into the, the sexed up dossier. From my point of view, he, he, fit, he fits the, the, the description of a missing per- a despondent missing person very well indeed. We didn't find anything what? at the house. Yeah, we didn't find anything in the house that that indicated, but that's not unusual. I've been to dozens, if if not hundreds, of missing people that have committed suicide without leaving a note, without any indication. They've just made that decision there and then and gone out and done it. There's a big book, though, Frankie, isn't there? Your intuition, your own intuition. There always is going to be a big bite in jobs like this where where conspiracies are being thrown around left, right, and centre. You know, the paramedics even said at the Hutton inquiry there was no blood at the scene, which is utter bunkum, to be honest. We we were, and it's going to be awful for any if these family are listening. We were squelching round in it. There was blood on the leaves, on the foliage, on his arm, on his jacket, on his trousers. Um, the paramedics, as far as I, I recall, didn't stand on the side of the body where I was. So I'll debunk that straight away. There was a lot of blood at the scene, and the photographs my team leader took clearly show that. Sadly, they've been locked away for 70 years with the rest of the documents, so nobody will ever see them. I think, Frankie, just just to reassure you about you know family members you know that, who who may well listen in, um, I think anything you've said today is it's been uh, you know and and also you know a lot of it uh, public record. But Debbie and I focus on these very cases, um, not to be graphic, but we want to keep these stories alive yeah because there are missing pieces uh, to this analysis and already debbie has got her, her own verdict already on this one um but in terms of perhaps the the missing part of the overall process that we've we've not spoken about is your appearance at the hutton inquiry and and i'm guessing that was a an emotional event i wonder for the benefit of listeners could you perhaps give us your um reflections on that um, process and how that how you were made to feel by some of the people that were asking you questions i have to say that that it was an inquiry and not a court case remember um we we went up to the to the courts thinking it would be like a court case where you would stand up and give evidence but although we did give evidence it was more conversational um you know we were never asked our opinions we were never asked to state anything we didn't do uh it was all very relaxed 
Lord Hutton was was, was very polite, um, and the gentleman asking the questions who named Dingermans, Mr. Dingermans, um, although very forthright, he was never overly aggressive or rude. So the whole thing was really laid back. You have to remember there were a lot of people giving evidence, so they, they did whip through it quite quickly. What was unpleasant during those days were the press. They were intrusive, they were rude, uh, you know, even, even to the point where at lunchtime we, we were in the gents, uh, a BBC reporter who, who is very well known stuck a microphone between my colleague and I and said, can I have your opinion? No, you can't. You know, the press hounded us at home. I got phone calls on my private phone, phone calls on my police phone. They turned up on my doorstep. You know, with these conspiracy theories, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Uh, you know, obviously every time we said no comment, and that's been well documented in, in the newspaper that, that that wanted all these details from it. You know, um, PC Franklin and the other PC uh, refused to answer our question. We didn't really refuse to answer their questions. We just didn't because that's policy and procedure. It's it's really interesting because on one hand that the, the press have got you know. A constitutional responsibility to report for the masses um, but your no comment was interpreted as almost evidence of this conspiracy is such that no one wants to talk about it I'm just curious for, from a police training point of view because I, I, I was never uh, you know led the searches to the level that, that you did uh, Frankie were you ever given any training on dealing with the press and what to say and, and how to perhaps minimize this conspiracy process it will inevitably follow something as high profile as the death you were dealing with no no, no real formal training uh, during training days we would meet up with with different people in different departments and the press office is one of them and we were always just told not to give any comment any opinion but refer to the press office now unfortunately the papers then think that means that means we're hiding something and i do i do on the other side of that coin i don't think the police do themselves any favor sometimes by not speaking out. You know, yeah. it, it, I, I would have quite liked them to defend my team leader and I and say, you know, these two guys were the men in black. They were there doing the job and they didn't do anything yeah. wrong. But the police don't do that. They never actually defend us. And when I complained about the newspaper to them and uh, we actually threatened to sue um, for defamation of character and libel because even though they didn't mention us by name, everyone knew it was my colleague and I and yeah. the job weren't very happy about it. It, it occurs to me that with this label, and, and, and Debbie said earlier on, almost symbolic in cases like this, the men in black, it perhaps would be a, an appropriate reflection for the police to have search teams dressed in something other than black. Um, but Debbie, before we start to wrap up today's really fascinating podcast, I, I've, I've really enjoyed this one uh, immensely. What's your Have your convictions changed? Because I'm picking up from Frankie that he's still quite adamant that this was a a suicide as opposed to anything more sinister? I don't think it was a suicide. And I don't think that you can think for a second that there could possibly be a situation where somebody could use a knife to kill themselves, slit their wrists, etc., um, and it not have any fingerprints on it. That alone screams that there is something not quite right about the whole thing and also it's it's just the whole method and for you know for somebody such a clever man etc I think there were which would have included 
um, having some care and concern for his wife and his family. I I don't believe for a, a moment that he would choose that method, um, given that obviously his family meant the world to him. Um, I think the reason that I see that person over him that's very smartly dressed, etc. It's not a t-shirt. This is like a suit. I th- I just think that's symbolic of somebody being involved in his death, and that um, I don't feel that that this was, for instance, any type of policeman at all. I don't. Um, it's somebody very official, definitely. But I also feel this is the the worst. The question about toxicology. I also feel that there was a substance, um, and I don't know anything at all about substances and medicinal things. But a substance that leaves no trace, or it's only, you know, evident for I don't know a short period of time after being given, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think that. There were two things, and one was obviously the injuries that he sustained that were made to look like he'd inflicted those injuries on himself. And I also feel definitely some kind of substance being used, I don't know, maybe to render him unconscious. Just on the knife thing, there's no fingerprint claim on the knife. There's a conspiracy theory only. There's, there's oh, no, right. There's no so evidence, that's not there's evidence. There's no evidence to say that, no, I don't think so, no. Uh, again, this is the police not defending themselves again. Um, ah, they should, right. I think, yeah. you know, if there was fingers on the knife, they should have come out and said there was. But I'd just like yeah. to make that clear yeah. that, that that is a conspiracy oh, theory was... rather than, than proof, as it were. The inquest but... wasn't completed, was it? No, that 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 was the most baffling um, sort of outcome in, in in terms of process. But Frank is absolutely right that the claim we don't need the proof of the fingerprints. There we go. The end of the inquest wasn't completed. Hang on a minute, Debbie. Whoa, just calm down just for a what minute. Was it or well, wasn't hang it? Hang on, the claim that no fingerprints were found on the uh, knife was from the group of doctors that denounced the, the Hutton um, verdict. But I think overall, um, you know, Frankie has comprehensively denounced um, all of those uh, claims uh, from that side. Um, but what I'd like to do before I give you my uh, uh, verdict, Frankie, I'm going to stick a microphone in your face now, not in the toilets, but um, finally, a summary. How did it happen, mate? My summary is, uh, as a police search advisor um, with quite a lot of years experience in dealing with missing people, despondent people and suicidal people, uh, is that Dr. David Kelly left his house, a despondent man, a broken man. He had with him a knife, he had with him the pills and a bottle of water. He walked into the woods, a place he knew well, a place he loved, a place of beauty. He took off his wristwatch from his left wrist. He took the tablets, he cut his wrists, and he five five cuts, hesitation cuts we call them, uh, until either he was despondent enough to do the final cut or the analgesia had kicked in and he cut his wrist. Uh, David Kelly, left his house, a despondent man, and committed suicide. Frankie, thank you. And uh, in short, I totally agree with you. And before I hand over to Debbie to bring things to a conclusion, um, I'd just like to put on record, I've thoroughly enjoyed your company uh, today. And I hope you're going to join us 
again i think your analysis and your your frankness um has been like a breath of fresh air particularly when uh, i think in the past when i've spoken to ex-cops and current cops there is this we don't want to talk you know we want to keep it very very you know snippet bits of information as i say uh, you've been brilliant frankie so um thank you from me and debbie if i can pass over to you to perhaps give a final summary and bring today's podcast to a close. Yep, sure. Thank you, Ian. And thank you so much for joining us today, Frankie. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to you. Um, maybe, you know, there are more cases actually that Frankie could talk about, Ian, you know, and perhaps he could come back on again with something else. And hopefully on the next one, we might actually agree something together. <laughs> Hey, behave. We, we've actually agreed on one of them. The voices from the car. Come on, you. It's, it's, not, all, it's not all about agreeing. That wasn't the only one. The Wilmslow murders. We did agree. About oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. Thank you for reminding me, yeah, my did. learned friend. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, well, there we go. This case, I'm sure, will baffle us all for many, many years to come. I hope that we have managed to still show the greatest respect to David Kelly's family and friends in discussing this case. I feel that we have. And so, you know, for us, this puts it to a close, even though we disagree on what actually really happened. But there's no surprise that I'm dealing with two ex-cops. So, (laughs) guys, uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's completely free. And follow us if you're on Android. Uh, We will be back again next week with, as always, yet another interesting case to discuss. Thank you so much for joining us today, Frankie. It's been so very, very interesting. And we can't wait to have you back on another podcast where we revisit one of the Wilmslow murders. Can't wait for that, guys. That should be absolutely amazing. We will see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.